Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. We are recording a little bit later in the week than usual. Um, Busy schedules. And we have a lot of games to talk about since we last recorded. Yeah, which makes it even more (laughs) unfortunate, Jamie, that we couldn't get this recording earlier in the week. I say we just because, you know, for a few more weeks, we're still kind of a podcast team, but it was totally my fault. We had a couple things happen with my job that made me push this back. So, you know, uh, sorry for making this a more difficult week for not only you, but the listeners who are expecting this to come early in the week, but... This was kind of part of the reason that I couldn't keep doing the show, uh, unfortunately, but it's Thursday. We got a lot of soccer to talk about. We still get to get a show done this week, so why don't we try to get caught up on it? And a lot of, a lot of goals to talk about, it seems like, at least for, <laughs> at least for one of the Portland teams. Yeah, um, a lot of goals, uh, especially in the first two games of uh, last week. A lot of goals, a lot of goals, not from the other team. Um, we, let's start with the U.S. Open Cup game. That feels ages ago, so I don't know how deep we want to go into this, but we haven't talked about it. So um, Timbers versus Galaxy in U.S. Open Cup at Providence Park, uh, round of 16. I predicted a Timbers 2-1 win. I, I thought it was going to be a close game. It was not. You predicted the Timbers would score at least three goals, so you were, uh, you, you, I think, had a better handle on the game. The Timbers win four to nothing versus the Galaxy. Yeah, I, I'm not going to say that that game went as I really thought it would. I mean, I certainly thought the Timbers attack, based on how they've played over the last month, was likely to put up a big number against the Galaxy. I didn't see 586 passes coming in the game. So, I mean, you know, when you think back on it, it's hard to dissociate the Wednesday game from the Saturday game because they were so similar. But I guess we could see the Wednesday game against the Galaxy, against a visiting team with a weekend lineup, as kind of a precursor for the Houston game. When we left Providence Park on Wednesday, I'm not sure we said to ourselves, oh, this is exactly what's going to happen against Houston. But it does seem like just a big block of offensive explosion. Yeah, I, I think one of the inter- – I mean, I think the main talking point coming out of the game was the lineup uh, that Gio played and um, also the su- substitution patterns that he made in the game. Um, he started pretty much a top lineup, and uh, in terms of substitutions, he didn't really try to get players off the field or, or anything like that. He didn't try to rest Diego Chara, Brian Fernandez when 
uh, the Timbers were, it was clear that the Timbers were going to win. I, I think in hindsight, you know, it, it's hard to really argue too much about that, uh, given what the rest of the week has looked like. But what did you think of that decision? No, I, I think I was with most people. And well, I wouldn't say most people, you know, you go on social media, social media and people are pretty vitriolic about it, but that's just social media. People are just reacting from their emotions. And in hindsight, that even seems fine. But I think based on last year and the way that was managed and just also hearing how Giovanni Savarese talked about these games, starting with the Seattle game and Open Cup in Tacoma, you sense that there was a plan, but you just didn't know what that plan was. So when I saw the strong team against the Galaxy, I said to myself, oh, because so many Dynamo players are missing, he's going to go weaker against the Dynamo. Okay, well, that makes sense. And then when you see the strong team against the Dynamo, you say to yourself, surely he can't travel everybody and play everybody in Montreal. So like you kind of hinted at, once you see those three pieces together, you're like, okay, everything makes sense. Including not rotating or not using a lot of the little use substitutes on Wednesday, just using kind of Diego Valeri off the bench. Well, what's going on here? Well, if you know Diego Valeri isn't going to play a week from now, and you also know all the players that aren't getting time on that Wednesday are going to probably start a week from now, it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, it, I don't, it doesn't bother me as much anymore. I definitely agree. After the game, I was wondering what what's the plan here. I think when you have the opportunity to get players like Diego Chara off the field, um, I, I think you probably should. But I, I don't think at this point you could really second guess that too much because given how he sort of rotated the week and the fact that, as we'll get into, he didn't travel any of those players to Montreal, sort of puts the Timbers in a position where, where it's sort of a wash. I, I mean, they got their week rest. Yeah, and the one thing that does stand out to me about some of the mentions that I had was people questioning bringing Valeri off the bench, which on one hand, if you're questioning him going in instead of somebody like, I think Eric Williamson was on the bench for that game and didn't play, if I recall correctly. It's so long ago, I can't remember. But there was uh, maybe Renzo Zambrano was one of the players on the bench that didn't play. Either way, when the game was lopsided like that, you think, well, why is this happening? What are you doing? I think from one perspective, you can think, why expose Diego Valeri at all? And that's kind of fair. But I think if you're worried about Diego Valeri's workload based on 12 minutes of play, look, he gets more he gets more mileage on him during a regular practice than he does 12 minutes of play during a game. So uh, you can always be concerned about injury exposure like you are with Diego Chara. But I really wouldn't worry about the extra mileage of 12 or 20 more minutes of play. It's still it's very interesting. I think, like we're talking about here, in real time, you have to ask these questions. You have to go, okay, what's the plan? You don't have to indict somebody in that moment, and you don't have to think that they don't know what they're doing, but you do have to keep in mind, you know, I need to see Saturday, I need to see Wednesday before this game can make sense, and in this case, it did kind of end up making sense. Yeah, um, I think with Valeri, you know, their Wednesday training, and I don't think people necessarily always realize this, it is usually, depending on where which where the game is in the week, but is often their toughest load. So he, if he had been at training that day, he probably would have had a, a bigger load than he did by coming off the bench. So injuries, that's always a worry. But in terms of the load, I, I completely agree with you. I think, as we've said a, a number of times, it the context of having the games after this game sort of changes our opinion of this game. So I think we should get into the Dynamo game. Uh, Obviously, the Timbers, by beating the Galaxy, are going to face LAFC on the road in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open Cup. Another LAFC game. Yeah. (laughs) Just like last year. Oh, man. Can we just like, can LAFC just go to the Eastern Conference for a little bit? Just, (laughs) Just a little bit of battle fatigue with LAFC. 
Yeah, uh, I don't know. This is going to be an interesting one. Obviously, uh, there's some tensions that have uh, built up between those two teams. And obviously, LAFC has been far and away the best team in the Western Conference this year. So that's not going to be an easy game. Uh, Even though the Timbers have gone all out in the U.S. Open Cup so far, they're not going to be favored, at least, to advance in that. Well, I mean, aren't you curious as to what new material Bob Bradley's worked up? I mean, (laughs) by now, he has to have a whole new five-minute set because the other one was getting a little bit old. I get it. You've moved from clubs to arenas. You're selling them out. You don't want to change your jokes. But, Bob, right now, the material needs a refresh. So let's see see the next (laughs) version of Bob. Come on. I mean, this... This set that you had, it's brought you to new levels. Everybody in MLS is is downloading your shows. They're going to Netflix to see what's going on next. Come on, Bob. This isn't an open mic night. Show us what you've got. Show us you can sustain this new success you found. <laughs> yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what uh, Bob Bradley says before that game and after that game. We'll talk more about that in, I guess, two weeks. And that's going to be another uh Three, three game, another long stretch. I'd have to look up exactly how many games they have and how many days. But no, it's another. It's, it's not, like you said. It's another three in a week stretch. Every so. time, every Open Cup game from here forward is going to mean a three games in one week stretch. So there's your double edged sword for you. Yeah. So I will have to see how they rotate there. But let's talk more about this week uh, with the Dynamo. Again, I stuck with the two one win, and uh, it was also not close. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Jamie, the theme of the last year on the show has been the two-one win. I know you went back to it. How, how are you feeling about it? How are you feeling? I was like, sort of hoping that I would go back to it and then just be able to say, "See, it worked." So, like, <laughs> what, what are you going to say? But uh, oh, I would have been so happy for you actually if that happened. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, four-zero, four-zero uh, was what last week looked like. Tim, you said the Timbers would score on a penalty kick. They did. So your predictions. Uh, for last week, at least uh, we didn't predict Montreal. So the predictions you have from this from last week's show uh, were pretty spot on. Yeah, and if I would have had to predict Montreal, I would have predicted that that the Timbers would have probably won that game. I mean, that twenty minute stretch in the second half where the Timbers actually looked good against Montreal. That's how I kind of pictured the whole game going. I guess I just didn't picture a lot of these guys in a road game kind of needing to adjust, which was really dumb on my part because we see every road game, the team plays differently or the players play differently. So I don't know why I thought Eric Williamson, Renzo Zambrano, Marvin Luria, Moju Jadama would just step on the field and be like they're 100% self. So I, I guess we can talk about that when we get to it, but I'm that would have shown some homerism if I had to pick that one. Yeah, I but I had on our sheet early in the week a 2-0 loss at Montreal. So I think I was a little bit yeah. more more on what happened, although I, I don't think I gave them quite as much credit as we will get to. Um, but to start with the Dynamo, I mean, like you said, it was sort of L- LA Galaxy continued. The, the Dynamo were missing some key players, as were the Timbers. They were without Sebastian Blanco because of a yellow card accumulation suspension. And obviously uh, Andy Polo and Andres Flores were away. The Dynamo were essentially missing their attack, uh, the attack we've been used to seeing. Uh, so they, I guess, that could have played a role in the game. But that aside, I mean, I think this was the Timbers' best performance of the season so far. Yeah, I think I tend to agree with you. And part of it is that the LA Galaxy game, they came out, they kind of played their normal style with the people that they had. They were obviously shorthanded, hamstrung. But it was pretty much LA Galaxy. Dynamo... They seem to be trying to prevent the scoreline that they eventually had. Had a lot of, 
I don't want to say embellishment, but a lot of physicality. They're playing a low-medium block, not a lot of pressure. Whenever the Timbers hit their line of confrontation, all of a sudden you saw a lot of fouls that were very borderline or they got away with. Uh, you saw people like Tommy McNamara going down very easily. It looked like in that first half hour of the game that they were just trying to extend things out a little bit, bleed it out, make it ugly. And for a while, it was ugly. But I think the fact that the Timbers eventually got to 4 nothing, had a second straight game with over 500 passes. You have some of the notes down here. 24-9 uh, to edge and shots. Uh, I think the fact that they even got there in the face of such a concerted performance by Houston showed you how much the attack was clicking at that time. Yeah, and I, I think the attack right now, um, I, I mean, I have this on our notes, but, you know, Brian Fernandez, he scores again. He has uh, eight goals and six appearances for the Timbers across all competitions. He's tying and getting close to setting some MLS records uh, based on the fact that he scored so much to open his MLS career. Diego Valeri was MLS player of the week. He, he scored and had three assists. I, I mean, this attack, you, you look at it, and Blanco wasn't even in this game, but Brian Fernandez, Diego Valeri, Sebastian Blanco, and Jeremy Abovesi, just those four guys, I, I think any team in the league would be, that's a pretty fearsome attack. Is Brian Fernandez the best player in the league right now? I mean, I think it's arguable. I wouldn't be surprised if he got player of the month. I mean, he needs to be in that consideration. Obviously, the standard is Carlos Vela. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Brian Fernandez has the virtue of a small sample size at this point, even though he has played six games, but six games with eight goals. Ugh, that's a that's a ridiculous pace. And we we see this, Jamie, with every game the Timbers play. It just seems like there's a moment where you kind of say to yourself, this is a totally different team. And there was a ferociousness in the waves that the Timbers attacked in, particularly in the Houston game, where in the second half, it just looked like a pummeling. A pummeling to the extent, I, I can't really remember the Timbers putting on an opponent before. Now, they've had lopsided scores before. I think the 5 nothing game in Los Angeles against the Galaxy in the cup win, uh, cup winning year was the one that I remember as being most... I don't know if that one was just lopsided or it was just more kind of like precise I don't know it was so long ago but this game just felt so overwhelming that from the sidelines I was forced to just go player for player in the team and just think to myself this team is just so confident right now and that confidence that confidence comes down to one guy yeah I mean I think Brian Fernandez not to say the Timbers haven't had like a killer instinct before not to say they haven't wanted to win to score they've obviously had success in the past but Brian Fernandez's mentality is just different. It's just the way he plays. You can tell he always wants a goal, and he's always moving. It's not like he's waiting for someone to set him up. He He's going to try to create his own chance if he has to. Um, and I think having a guy like that on the field, it, it helps a player like Diego Valeri because suddenly teams can't just hone in on him um, as, as if he's the main attacker. It might help a player like Blanco if he's in there too with having – those different players teams have to sort of pick and choose who are we are we going to try to focus in on Brian Fernandez and give Sebastian Blanco a, a shot from distance that he can probably convert are we going to focus in on Diego Valeri and leave Brian Fernandez it it, it puts teams other uh, opposing defenses in a really difficult position so you mentioned Diego Valeri he had a goal he had three assists he won player of the week Jamie did you leave that game on Saturday thinking Diego Valeri was the best player on the field I don't know. I I I I I think it key obviously with the three assists and 
I think he made some really good passes and, he was good. and created some really good opportunities. And I, I think given what we've been saying early, we were saying early in the season where we were talking about, oh, is Diego Valeria essentially over the hill? He has definitely proved us wrong. Um, and, and in terms of the ability that he's had to create this season, um, I, I think in some previous years, he's become had to be more of the goal scorer for the Timbers. I mean, his MVP year, he had to shoulder that responsibility. He's really been able to go back to creating, especially since Brian Fernandez came in. And I think he's looked a lot better, but I don't know. I, I mean, there's multiple players I could have pointed right. to and said they might be the best player on the field. I mean, the three assists, this is great. I mean, Diego Valeri is up to 10 assists on the year. He's four shy of his career high. He's going to threaten to become, I think, the third person in league history to get 20 assists if he stays on this pace. And he was obviously key in that game. He generated eight chances by himself. But when I think of that game, I think of Brian Fernandez. I think of Marvin Loria. I think of Jeremy Obobese's goal, which is just a great goal. It's just interesting that we still in this world, in the soccer world, are still kind of coming to grips with how to weight statistics. Because you know how this voting works. This is a league where voters on Sunday night, cannot have watched every game in the league. And I'm sure they saw one goal, three assists from Diego Valeri, and said, yeah, that's the best stat line of the week. Well, the goal was from the penalty spot. At least one of the assists was a secondary assist. Uh, it's just it's just a little bit weird. But Diego Valeri, yes, we talked about him as if we need to think about whether he's over the hill. I think there needs to be, like, for me personally, a moratorium on that kind of talk until July of each year. Because I got I got sucked into this last year too, which is like, well, he looks a step slower, and you know, with his age, maybe this is how he's going to age, or maybe it's just a slow start to the season, or maybe it's just a down month, like everybody has down month down months during the year. Either way, four goals, ten assists this year. His stats are on track to be what they always were. He's key to what this team is doing right now. Without him, Brian Fernandez wouldn't be working. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. Even though I don't think that I left that field thinking he was the best player in that game, I think he's obviously a critical, uh, critical cog for what the Timbers are doing right now. Let's talk about one of the players you just mentioned because I, I think this was one of the biggest storylines coming out of the game, Marvin Luria. Mm-hmm. I, I, so, I mean, people were asking me, "Who's Marvin Luria?" I mean, I, I think for people that haven't been watching T two over the last two years, this was sort of a out of nowhere. Uh, start for for a guy who had yet to make an MLS his MLS debut, uh, and given how he performed, um, it, essentially Ian asks what I just summarized. He said, "From a Timbers fan who doesn't watch T two, did we know that he was? Did we know that Loria was this good, or did he just play out of his mind Sunday?" No, we knew he was this good. I, I mean, he's not always going to have games like this, but I don't think anybody who watched T2 last year or has followed Marvin Luria's story was really surprised by what we saw. I mean, the things that he did on the field, not only Saturday, but also in glimpses on Wednesday uh, against Montreal, that's Marvin Luria. Um it was almost a shame that he broke his toe earlier this year and he couldn't really work his way into the lineup sooner when, um, particularly during that road stretch to start the season, they could have used this type of player. Uh, but I think what you saw in addition to just the great goal, earned a penalty, just a level of dynamism that we don't see with very many other Timbers wide players is a wide player that profiles differently than what the Timbers have. They have Sebastian Blanco. He's obviously very unique, dynamic in his own way. Jeremy Abobasi is playing wide now. Andy Polo, when he gets back, is a very specific type of player. Marvin Loria, even though he can also play at uh, 10, when he goes wide, he projects as kind of a tra- the traditional winger that the Timbers don't really have in that role. And 
I think if you're excited about Marvin Loria seeing him for the first time on Saturday, imagine how somebody who watched T2 all last year felt because they probably saw this kid and kept thinking to himself, why is he in USL? Because he's too good for USL. And I think he partially proved that on Saturday. Yeah, I, I think the Timbers, for, from us that are sort of behind the scenes, and maybe we haven't broadcast this enough, but um, without trying to set expectations too high, because I think that can be dangerous, the Timbers were saying um, from last year, you watch this guy, watch Marvin Luria. He's going to be something when, when, when he signs with the first team. And it was very clear um, decently early on last year that they were looking at him to sign him for the Timbers this year. And, and I think had he not had the injuries earlier this season, we might have seen him play at least a role earlier. Um, now it, it's interesting to see what role he's going to play. I, I mean, one start is one start. We now have sort of the sample size of two starts, uh, given the Montreal game. Uh, and, and I think uh, that has definitely not hurt him. Um it, it's going to be interesting to see what role he can play for the Timbers going forward. Yeah, well, Gabriel's question here on the sheet hints at that. He asks, what are Andy Polo's chances of getting decent playing time now? What do you think, Jamie? <laughs> I mean, if Loria plays like he did on Saturday, if he can keep up uh, close to that sort of performance, I, I think they're low. I, I think the Timbers brought in Andy Polo, hoping he'd be that true winger that could provide goals and assists and, and be that dynamic player on the wing. He hasn't been that. He, he In terms of production, he just it hasn't been there. And, and Loria comes in draws a penalty, scores a goal on his first start. If he can keep that kind of uh, production up and be that dangerous wide player, you you just look at those two players and you say, which one would I rather have in the lineup? And the answer based on that performance, which is, again, a small sample size, um, is Marvin Loria. I, I think the important thing to also recognize, though, is where does Jeremy Abobasi fit in here? Because now with Brian Fernandez in the lineup and Abobasi essentially ha- having to play a more of wide position, Loria isn't going to just be competing with Andy Poehler for playing time. Andy Poehler, I-, I don't think, was going to necessarily come back uh, from Copa America as a starter uh, because Jeremy Abobasi, if the Timbers want him on the field as well, have to find room for him. That's a good shout, and I'll throw one other name in there. Thomas Konechny seems like he's making progress. The minutes that he's got over the last couple games, I'm I'm not feeling as high on him as Marvin Loria, but that's kind of a high standard at this point. I think Thomas Konechny is showing his first flashes that he can be a good contributor off the bench, be it in a spot-starting role or somebody that comes in 15 minutes at a time. He obviously has a long way to go, but he scored a goal on Wednesday, uh, and he's looking more and more comfortable in the time that he is getting during this stretch. So... You talk about the wide players, Sebastian Blanco, guarantee in the lineup. Jeremy Obobasi, I don't know if guarantee is the right word, but you have to think long and hard if you're not going to start him in a game. And then after that, you have Marvin Loria. And then after that, you've got Polo and Konechny. I think Polo probably deserves to be a little bit above Konechny on the depth chart right now. But in my personal opinion, and I don't know if this is shared with the coaching staff, I would have Loria above Polo. But again, we seem to do this like once a month on the show. I step on a soapbox and tell people about, oh, you know, these two two players, I'm so high on them. And then we get them to the show and there's more of a learning curve than maybe I predict. So that's something to factor in here is that I tend to be biased to these guys at T2 because, you know, just kind of intellectually, I think, well, I was about to say subconsciously, but now I'm saying it out loud. So it's not subconsciously anymore. I want some kind of return on my mental investment, basically. I want some kind of return, uh, return for my intellectual capital here. So I'm always going to be higher on Marvin Loria, Renzo Zambrano, Eric Williamson, and maybe biased against players like Andy Polo. But 
This is this is the theory of having a deep depth chart, right? You get these players, you get them playing well, you get them back in the environment from international duty, and they have to compete. Andy Polo's got to compete. Yeah, and I mean, when when Andy Polo comes back, how where are we going to be at? I mean, what will we have a larger sample size from Loria? Um, I, I think that factors into it as well. Yeah, absolutely. But that's that's true. Um, but from the coaching staff's point of view, they probably feel like they have a year and a half sample size on him, whereas we feel like we have two games. So they also, in turn, have a year and a half sample size on Andy Polo too. So that affects the competition. And I think the sample size we have on Andy Polo, I would say, I mean, I would just say it's it's going to be it's a competition. And I'm not trying to you know be cautious about that, but when you're talking about a guy who is an established first team player who has been mostly a starter for a year and a half, has also was also a starter in Mexico before coming here, compared to somebody who has only played his first two first division games in North America. And to say that they're on the same level, I think that says something about each player. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right now, just by looking at performances, I I would think it it goes, you know, Jeremy Abobasi, if you're assuming that that's the spot he's taking, Marvin Luria, Andy Polo. But like you said, that's just based on such a small sample size. It could could change uh, quickly. Yeah. And you mentioned Abobasi. I'm not a big fan of having him out wide. I wasn't at least a fan at first, but to see the way that he has taken to this role and to see some of the versatility that they have, I mean, the ability for Jeremy Abobasi to make some secondary runs, even when the team is just kind of not even in the attacking third, for him to just bust forward from his wing position, see Sebastian Blanco just kick a long ball to him, and he's able to bring it down, and immediately they're, uh, they're attacking. I think that brings something that I hadn't really considered before. And then we saw with Jeremy Abobasi's goal. Uh, for me, uh, no <laughs> no sh- no shade on Marvin Luria or Brian Fernandez's goals against Houston. Uh, against, which game, I think? Yeah, against Houston. Um, but for me, Jeremy Obobese's was the toughest goal of the night. The yeah. last one, pulling, I mean, pulling it back. Um, Joe Willis was in better position for that goal than he was on Brian Fernandez's goal. And if if Jeremy Obobese's going to add that to his game, uh, <laughs> then he, he he might be a wide player. Yeah, I mean, this is a good problem for the Timbers to have. The attack is uh, is on another level now, which is great if they can keep that up. But let's. Let's before we move on. Let's at least talk about the defense as well, because uh, LA Galaxy Timbers earned their first clean sheet of the year. Uh, Houston, they earned their first clean sheet in MLS play. How important was that? You, you think for them to finally be able to say, "Here's a clean sheet." I don't know. I think it was important, but I think in my mind, I'm kind of trying to fight against that a little bit because we saw at the end of the road trip, six straight games with only allowing one goal. I think we knew the defense was steady, and the thin margins between one and zero goals in a game. Should that really define a defense? Well, maybe that's the wrong question to ask. I think they thought it was important to prove to themselves that they could do it, and they did it twice in a row. So to to a certain extent, if you want to just look at this as, in terms of psychology or you want to look at it in terms of being able to achieve team goals, I think it was important. But uh, I can talk about this in a second. I'd rather hear your views on this first. I, I think um, kind of the con- constituent parts of that performance, to me, are more important than the bottom line zero on the scoreboard i think that there was a sense that the timbers had finally settled on a center back pairing with uh tuiloma and mabiala and that maybe they didn't have another pairing that worked tulio cascante had been inconsistent i I think it's good to see him come back into the lineup and and play better um and and be able to be part of that um, getting a clean sheet and I, I think there is a big psychological element to it. I, I think anytime you have something, even like the Diego Chara stat we have, and you keep getting that told that by the media, 
Um, can you win with that Diego Char? Can you get a clean sheet? I, I think there is a psychological element. I don't know how much players think about it, but I think it's always good to sort of get that monkey off your back with, with those kind of things. No, that's you're kind of convincing me here a little bit, and I think we can start to talk about some of those parts. I agree with you regarding Julio Cascante, and obviously I've been very high on Julio Cascante forever, but yeah, consistency was a problem. Um, and I think that even in the game in Montreal on Wednesday, I thought he's played well, even though other parts of the defense didn't play particularly well. But Cascante is kind of giving that same performance, even when Larry Smaviala isn't in there. And yeah, another thing that you said that I want to build on, sometimes just the fit between Mabian and Cascante looked like it was leaving both players in a bad position or not in the best position to succeed. And Tui Loma coming in kind of solved that a little bit, but you know, it's they got these clean sheets with Cascante. They haven't missed a beat since Tui Loma went out. And I think we have to recognize at some point that Julio Cascante has played better than he did at the beginning of the year. And I know there's a narrative around Julio Cascante that isn't going to change anytime soon, but it probably should change. That doesn't mean it's going to, but it probably should. And the other part of this that I think is really interesting is uh, Jorge Villafaña. He lost his starting job before. He didn't look good at the beginning of the year. He's being exploited. He didn't look good in preseason either to the point where you're kind of going... What'd you do the last couple months, Jorge? What's, what's, what's going on here? Well, credit to him. He's fought back. I think he's had some really good individual performances probably before this week because there wasn't really a call for great individual performances against the Galaxy or Houston. But you're even seeing him in one-on-one situations where he's holding up much better than he was at the beginning of the year. And I think we can almost go throughout the whole team and... Against the Houston in the Houston game in particular, Christian Paredes and what they were doing with him and getting him higher in the formation earlier in the set and getting another attacking player or an attacking threat farther forward, he's taking on different roles or more expansive roles. Or maybe it's just the fact that they're playing at home now that they can do those kind of things. But this form that we see from the Timbers last week before the Montreal game, there are so many little pieces that are elevated as compared to before. I mean, the team is now getting comfortable with Steve Clark as a number one goalkeeper at this point. All these things are kind of coming together, and uh, it's making me look at the team in a different way. I have to say that. Yeah, and Jorge Murr came back into that game. He gets an assist, and and, um, I don't think I I noticed him that much, but maybe that's a a good thing to have um, defensively. Um, I I think it's interesting to see some of these players who who we've criticized at at times uh, be able to come back in and put in a better performance. Yeah, the one thing I remember about Morera from the Houston game is that one point he got forward and was able to take a shot from inside of the area, but in the left side of the area. So somehow he had drifted all the way from his right back position to almost as far diagonally on the field as you can go without just going to take a corner. And he was taking a shot from uh, Joe Willis's right. And yeah, I mean, I think it just shows the aggressiveness that he, uh, he plays with. Sometimes he gets burned with that. But I also wonder, is this just going to be how home timbers are compared to road timbers? Because they, I think most teams play a little bit differently when they go on the road. Obviously, the Timbers have been performing differently. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out as the sample size of home games in- increases. <laughs> and the sample size of road games goes down. I- I'm trying to actually think now. His assist to Marvin Luria, uh, I think, also was from the left side of the field. You're right. Yeah, he, he like headed it down from the edge of the six-yard box, assist. right? Yeah, it was a good assist. Well, yeah. Now I'm wondering, so, well, how did he get there? <laughs> yeah, this isn't so remarkable. I, I have this anecdote that I think is this special nugget. It's like, actually, Richard, if you look at his heat map, he only has in two spots in the right to the right of Larry Mabiala or all the way in the six yard box. <laughs> one of those two. Apparently. Um, let's get to the, the road game uh, in terms of that sample size. And this is obviously a little different. And I, I think it's going to be 
tough to take too much away from this in terms of what it means for the Timbers uh, going forward this season necessarily. But um, Timbers go to Montreal last night um, and lose two to one. Uh, Savarese leaves everyone back in Portland. I, I mean, no <laughs> Brian Fernandez, no Diego Valeri, yeah. no Sebastian Blanco, no Larry Smobiola, no Steve Clark. I, I, I could go on. No Jorge Moreira. <laughs> yeah, right. You, we can go on. Um, but I think this game comes down to what you think of that decision. And like we said, in light of the two previous games, this was probably predictable. Maybe not to the extent that he actually rested players. But look, if you're going to rest players, then if you're, if you're going to say, okay, we have to rest Chata and Maviala and Valeri, well, then you have to go through the whole team and say, okay, who else could use this rest too? Jorge Moreira, he, needs to, he can use this rest too, and et cetera, et cetera. And I can understand fans not liking that because when you tune into a game where you devote time to this, you want to you want to have every game be you know as entertaining as valuable as it can possibly be. But I just, Jamie, you can tell me what you think. I just don't see any any way around what the Timbers did on Wednesday, given how they approached the previous two games. Yeah, it was clear given how they approached the previous two games. If they wanted to have a chance against Dallas at home, which that is a Western Conference opponent, that is a home game, that is a game where you can circle on the calendar and say, we want three points there. And and so you want to be in a good situation for that game. You want to put your best foot forward. They had to rotate. I I think there's a question about, did they have to rotate this much? Um, Mm -hmm. Sebastian Blanco, I, I think, was a little bit of a surprise absence. He was listed on the injury report as questionable. He did say after the game at, at the U.S. Open game against the Galaxy, that he'd been sort of dealing with a sore knee for a while. So it might just be, I'd have to follow up with Gio on that, but there might just be an element of he needed that rest and they didn't want to push him um, for that game. I, I, I think Savarese could have gone the way where he did a half-and-half half lineup, but then at Dallas, he against Dallas, he would have had to also uh, sort of factor in those decisions and maybe put the Timbers in a position where they couldn't put their best foot forward at home. So I agree with this decision. I, I'm pretty sure when I looked at the schedule to begin with, this was a game I circled on the calendar and said, Timbers are going to rotate there. Yeah, uh, I think we talked about that on the podcast. It, this was a game that I think the Timbers for a while knew that they were going to rotate as well. It's tough. Traveling all the way to Montreal and back midweek and then going and playing a game on Sunday, it's just really tough. And so mm. I think this was the right decision from the Timbers, even though it meant essentially that they were conceding uh, points here and, and sort of gambling to... Maybe we'll end up with a point, but I think they had to do it. I like how you brought up the fact that we could have gone six months ago and circled this game and go, that's ridiculous. They're going to have to rotate there. Because, you know, Wednesday game, around two games in Portland, it's a a more than two time zone trip, so they're leaving Monday. So they're spending three days away from Portland total. They're losing two days of training to the travel itself. There are no direct flights there, so it's a little bit of a extra step there yeah i mean and and plus it's a eastern conference team sandwiched against two western conference teams two western conference teams you could potentially be battling with for positioning three months from now i mean unless you just don't believe that players should ever be rotated you're rotating for this game and i think it's a better discussion point like you said should they have gone 100 percent rotation or could they have found a middle ground could they did on 60 percent rotation but look when we go down the players who played on Wednesday, a lot of them, I think we would have said, were fine. Modu Jadama was fine. 
Renzo Zambrano, I don't think he had his best game, but we've seen Renzo Zambrano play well before. Marvin Loria, Eric Williamson missed another really good chance. I mean, I feel for him. That's this game in the Philadelphia game where he missed chances to get on the score sheet. I think the biggest question coming out of Wednesday's game is Claude Dielna, but Claude Dielna isn't somebody who's you know being rotated in surprisingly. I mean, he's the fourth center back on the depth chart. If you're going to leave two center backs at home, Tui Loma and um, Larry Smabiala, then it's not a surprise that Claude Dielna plays here. I think it's more about, I think it's more about Claude Dielna's performance than the actual decision to rotate him in. Yeah, I, I mean, given the depth chart, you had to play Claude Dielna there. That, that was not a surprise. I think Claude Dielna has just been a major disappointment this season. Uh, unfortunately for the Timbers, they were hopeful bringing in a veteran that he was going to be able to provide something, especially on the road earlier in the season. I ju- he just hasn't taken the opportunity. I, I, he's just looked. I mean, he looked sl- slow at times um, in the game against Montreal. Uh, it was he really struggled defensively uh, against a speedy uh, Montreal attack. I just we just haven't seen what I, I think the Timbers hope to see from Dielna. Yeah, I'm at this point. I don't. I don't know that there's a case to think of him as being. F- you know, I mentioned him as fourth on the depth chart. I don't know that there's a case to consider him a better player than Modu Jadama right now. I think Jadama had to start it right back on Wednesday because they just didn't have any other fullbacks who could really play 90 minutes. Uh, but if, say, if say Zarek Valentin was able to make the trip and he was able to play it right back, I wonder if Modu Jadama would have started in central defense with Julio Cascante and not Claude Dielna because I mean, we saw against Orgio Conquo, he just got roasted on that first yeah. goal. Absolutely roasted. He took one step into midfield and wasn't able to recover from it. Even at the end of that play, it kind of looked like he had given up hope of contesting that ball, yeah. which turned into a goal. So, um, you was, know, it, sorry, yeah. it wasn't even the, just the first goal. It, it, the, the, yeah, he the, had that chance right before that. That was basically the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, we have to give Thomas Thomas Konechny credit for playing a good ball to the Montreal attacker on that one. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, really, it was Julio Cascante's defending on that one that ended up kind of saving the play. In addition to Jeff Atanella, you know, staying big and positionally strong, but he was able to do that because Julio Cascante was cut off the passing angle across the top of the six-yard box. But it shouldn't have just been Julio Cascante at that point. That was Claude Dielna's play. So we'll see if Claude Dielna can adjust. We'll see if we see him again or when we see him again. But like you said, to this point, there's really only one grade we can give Dielna, and it's not a positive one at all. Yeah, I do want to bring up another player here. I I didn't necessarily mention this on the the notes, but Lucas Milano doesn't even get into the lineup in this game. What does that say about his future with the team and, and where he is in the depth chart right now? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't get into the starting 11. We've seen that he hasn't been in the 18 for most of the games leading up to the stretch. He's made a couple of 18s now. And when he got onto the field on Wednesday, I, you know, he was a non-factor. So I kind of think that his play speaks for itself. I think also it's he's at a point where he's not improving in his career. And there are so many people that need the playing time. Like, even if you think Tomos Konechny is, isn't necessarily a better play than Lucas Milano, he's just kind of at the same level, you're giving that playing time to Tomos Konechny at this point to see if it actually improves him. Because the playing time that was going to Milano wasn't moving him forward. And you can make that same argument for Luria and Williamson and everybody else here. So yeah, I think the way that you phrase that question, what does it say about where he is on the depth chart? I think his playing time reflects where he is on the depth chart, to be honest with you. What are you seeing from where you're sitting, Jamie? Because I, you know, I get to see... Lucas training every day. I I kind of know where he is in terms of the coach's mindset, the coach's selection. What does it look like from where you're sitting? It looks like this is a guy that might be gone in the summer. I, I mean, the Timbers mm-hmm. have to find a place to put him. Um, that that's 
that's the fact of the matter, but they are spending and they have been spending. It's just unfortunately been um, just has, that signing has just absolutely not paid off. Um, they've been spending. They are spending a ton of money on him. There doesn't seem to be a spot for him on this team right now. Not with a player like Konechny as an option off the bench. Not even with Espria as an option off the bench. Obviously, Espria gets to start here. Uh, and then you add Brian Fernandez into the mix, that kind of dropping everyone else back in the depth chart. Now Loria coming in as a potential winger. There's no role for Milano here, and there's no reason for the Timbers to have that sort of salary strain on the roster. It's a matter of when and how they can offload him or whether his contract just runs out. And, and what's more, I think Milano has incentive to find another place where he's going to get playing time. I think it's not really a secret that Milano's in the last year of his deal, to my knowledge, unless some kind of trigger happened that uh, executed a second option that would extend it by a year. But the assumption is Lucas Milano is in the last year of his deal. So he's essentially playing for his next contract at this point. And if he stays here, what are the odds he even gets more than 150 minutes the rest of the year on, in all competitions? I, I would say I would take the under on that one. Yeah. So if Lucas is really um, is re- Lucas is really intent on putting himself in the best position to negotiate for the next deal, wherever that de- deal may be, he needs playing time. Now, at the same time, if you're in Milano's situation, you know wherever you go, you're not going to make the money that you're on this current deal. So from his point of view, he might be saying, you know, I'm going to have to take a major step back anyway. So why don't I just stay where I'm happy, stay in a place where I like everybody, it's comfortable, there's a reason I wanted to come back here last year anyway, and then no matter what, after the season, I'm going to have to take a reset. So I'll just take that reset from a step zero space as opposed to taking the risk of going somewhere else where I'm not going to be guaranteed to play either. On the other side of um, that, we sort of touched on it, but Tim says, who caught your eye during the game? Did anyone to you raise their stock considerably uh, in Montreal? No, not really, to be honest with you. I just think that the Timbers didn't have enough control of the game for anybody to really look great. There were definitely flashes. Uh, like I already mentioned Julio Cascante. Um, the left side of the defense was really getting roasted during the first half, and Julio Cascante was having to do some emergency defending. Um, other than that, I think we saw some some moments of that individual brilliance again from Marvin Loria, particularly after Montreal's first goal. Uh, I think that was good, but... Jamie, you tell me because I'm not really seeing anybody out of the 11 and thinking to myself, whoa, that that was an eye-opening thing that you just did. Yeah, I would have brought up the exact same two players. I don't think it was necessarily eye-opening, eye-opening but given, like we've said, Julio Cascante's inconsistency in the past, I think it was another good performance, two in a row. That's good for him. I, I think Loria again showed that he belongs at this level, uh, even though I don't think he had the chance to be as influential as he was uh, in the previous game against Houston. I think it was good for Jeff Adonella to get back in there and, and not ha- have any errors. I, I mean, obviously, he mm-hmm. can see two goals, but but those are not his fault. Um, I, I think it's good from a confidence level to get him back on the field and get him this opportunity. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I thought Jeff Adonella, hopefully that is going to be a confidence booster for him. And same thing, every game that Julio Cascante plays like that, hopefully it is a confidence booster. And I'm saying confidence intentionally here because thinking back particularly to the first half and the end of the first half where you're just thinking to yourself, come on, whistle. Need the whistle right now. You saw in the second half that the team was capable of better over that first 45 minutes. I think the only thing that was missing was the same confidence that they took to the field over these last two games. Because you watch those performances and those could have easily been if the team wasn't as as confident, wasn't as daring, it wasn't as eager. Those could have been run-of-the-mill 2-0 games. But they just... They really wanted to step on the other team's throat. 
there wasn't that same kind of momentum, that same kind of confidence in the first half. The team wasn't playing to their talent level in the first half. They were playing like, we're a team on the road in MLS, we're supposed to be cautious. There wasn't anything that was leveraging the, the actual ceilings of Marvin Loria, Eric Williamson, Renzo Zambrano, Christian Paredes. Let's not forget about him either. There were talented players on the field. Maybe this is part of their learning curve. But that first 45 minutes, they didn't look like themselves. Yeah. Second half was better. They showed fight. Um, yeah. I, I think you take it. It's a loss. Um, but the overall, I think you saw some promise from the young players, especially in that second half, at least coming back and showing that they could compete with a top Montreal lineup. Um, but I, I think going to that game, once you saw the lineups, it, it was sort of an expected loss. Anything better was going to be, it was going to be an added bonus. Yeah. Well, let's go from an expected loss to a game that the Timbers have put themselves in position where they probably expect to win. And that's Sunday at Providence Park. Another 8 p.m. kickoff. That's the new theme of the season here at Providence Park. 8 p.m. kickoffs. Um, this will be the end of what might, in hindsight, be the most arduous stretch before the playoffs. Four games in 12 days. It wasn't just two weeks. The first game of this four-week stretch was on a Wednesday. It's ending on a Sunday. But as we've talked about in great detail in this show, they've put themselves in a situation where for the bulk of the squad, it'll seem like a normal week. They'll have a full week's training here in Portland. They'll have a week between games. And in that sense, Jamie, should we even be talking about this as if it's part of the compacted schedule? Because by essentially punting in Montreal, they kind of, for the bulk of their squad, took a game out of the routine for them. Yeah, I don't really think we should be. I mean, I think... This, we're going to have a well-rested starting lineup. That's how the Timbers prepared for this, um, and that's why they rotated Montreal. I think Dallas, um, unlike Houston, will have players available, um, more, more of their top lineup available um, than, than Houston necessarily had. But Dallas played in Vancouver and, by the way, blew, <laughs> really blew a, a result. I don't know mm-hmm. if they played, sorry, I don't know if that was in, I didn't look if that was in Dallas or in Vancouver, but they played against Vancouver. They blew a result. I, I think they conceded two goals in essentially stoppage time. Uh, it's a tied 2-2. But they played their lineup there. And, and so I think Dallas is the team here that's going to be dealing with short rest. The Timbers are at home. They have their top lineup that should be well-rested and available, barring any injuries. The Timbers have put themselves in a really good position to, to as expected, they, they want to get the win here. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Vancouver game because we were just talking about, with the Montreal game, basically the young players from the team not coming out and playing to their potential. But also the subtext there is, look, this is part of developing young players is trying to get that consistency out of them, trying to get them to compete on the level that they uh, need to compete at at this new level. And I think everybody knows that Dallas is a very young team. Uh, we saw a glimpse of them in the first game between these teams of the year where the Timbers controversially lost 2-1. to uh, They have some great young players. Somebody like Paxton Pomacall is one of the better young players in the league, and he's showing that for his U national team too. But the up-and-down performances are part of developing that young team. So you wonder, for a lot of players, their first time coming to Portland with expectations, them trying to rebound off of a of, uh, performance that they're going to consider a disappointment. Playing a team that... Uh, is among when the full lineup is on the field among the best teams in the league right now. So you throw those things out, then you start lining them up, and you start thinking to yourself, yeah, the Timbers are in a position to give Dallas a learning experience, but as always in MLS, if you go into a game thinking like that, you're the one that's probably going to take some lessons home. Yeah, I, I think any MLS game is tough. I think the Timbers have the opportunity to have another dominant performance like they did uh, against Houston. Um but you never know. You never know how the game's going to play out. Um, you, you don't know if uh, how Brian Fernandez is going to perform in this game, although what we've seen is uh, 
been very positive if he's going to continue that scoring streak. Um, I, I think this is a huge opportunity for the Timbers to have another really telling performance at home, dominant uh, performance, and get another very decisive win. But it's the kind of thing that a goal here or a moment here sort of changes the game, and it's hard to predict. Yeah, and I think uh, another angle to this is Dallas has a first-year coach, Luchi Gonzalez. We saw last year with Giovanni Savarese the lessons that he had to learn on the road, particularly on the stretch where they went from D.C. to Kansas City, and he maybe pushed the team a little bit too much. He, he explicitly said after that in his press conferences, we learned a lot of lessons from this stretch. And I think... For a first-time coach, going out on the road almost every time you go to a new place, particularly with a young team that Luchi Gonzalez is very familiar with given his time with the team, but he just doesn't know how his players are going to react in this situation. He he kind of doesn't know the extent to which he needs to change his tactics to deal with Portland. Now, he'll have a, a good idea coming into this game based on his research, but it's one of those things you never know until you deal with it. So that'll be an interesting angle here too, whether Lucy Gonzalez gets it right. Because, you know, based on our experience in covering this team at Providence Park, it's it's not an easy place for opposing teams to play. You think you think for Brian Fernandez is gonna score? If you had to if you had to make a bet. <laughs> Obviously there's gonna come a point where he's not gonna score, but based on based on all the evidence we have, why would somebody bet against him scoring? Like what kind of odds would you give me? Like if you if you gave me two to one odds against him scoring, then I would take him, but you would have to give you would have to give me odds at this point. Yeah, I think a well-rested Brian Fernandez uh, at home against a Dallas team that might be yeah. dealing with uh, some short rest issues and, and um, trying to adjust uh, after a Wednesday game. I think this is a potentially good chance for Brian <laughs> Fernandez to break some records and keep that scoring streak alive. We'll see, though. Yeah, and with the possible exception of Bill Tuiloma, who we can't rule out because we haven't talked to Giovanni Savarese yet, and the last time Giovanni Savarese talked about Bill Tuiloma was, what, 10 days ago, 9 days ago, and he said Bill Tuiloma was getting closer. He was at least in the conversation to be evaluated for games at this point. Uh, but aside from that, the Timbers are at full strength. We saw the Timbers... You know, that, that game where the handball wasn't called against Ryan Hollingshead in the, late in that game. We saw the Timbers basically compete with Dallas in Dallas. Now they're at home. Now they're a better team with more momentum and more confidence. I mean, maybe Dallas will figure it out where Houston and L.A. didn't. But based on everything we know going into this week, Jamie, you have to say that the Timbers are like a, a strong favorite. Um, let's switch gears now and talk a little bit about the Thorns, which is a team that, unlike the Timbers, did not score. Uh, many goals at home they did not score any goals at home um in in their most recent game against the utah royals uh i predicted a 3-1 win so i did not know what was going to happen again you uh predicted a thorns clean sheet you you were all over those (laughs) yeah this is my best prediction week of the year isn't it i mean some of these predictions are pretty specific like the like the timbers scoring on a penalty kick um this one i have to admit i I didn't think it was going to end zero zero I was pretty confident that Utah was going to have trouble scoring goals, but I I got to give credit to the Royals. Um, after we had our our recording last week, I, I got to watch some additional tape of the Royals. I kind of thought they would lose one nothing or maybe two nothing on a, on a late goal as they were chasing the game, uh, but they played. I thought they played very very well defensively, and we can talk about it. But I thought the way they played defensively, in particular, poses some interesting questions for the Thorns as they finish out this period without their World Cup stars. Yeah, uh, Thorns out shoot Utah 18-7, to uh, but they can't get that goal. Um, they keep a clean sheet, as we obviously said. Uh, I mean, Mitch Purse, after the game, I thought was pretty disappointed. Uh, she had six shots. Um, 
led the team in shots and, and really felt like the Thorns had the opportunities to score, um, but obviously weren't able to get through that Utah defense. Yeah, you know, by the time this is out, I think people will hopefully my my uh, piece on Mitch Purse is out. I know you're writing one too, but it's from a different point of view. I, I talk specifically about that attitude that she had after the game because I went up to her right after the game and I I said to her, Mitch, how do you think you played today? And she paused for a long time and she said, I think that's a loaded question. And I realized in hindsight, she just didn't know where I was coming from on it. She thought I was going to be critical of the way that she played. And I said, well, let me just tell you, I'm talking to you about this because over the last three weeks, you've become known for your goals. And I thought you did a lot beyond scoring goals tonight that I want to talk to you about. And then she said, okay, yeah, but I should be scoring those goals. We walked through a couple of her chances. I don't think they were great chances. I think there are chances she scores on another day or could score on another day. But even going back and looking at expected goals charts, she didn't have a chance that was more likely to be converted than not in that game. I think it says a lot to her personal expectation levels that she's getting on herself for that. She has very, very high standards for herself right now. She realizes the opportunity that she has. But I also wonder, Jamie, whether it's fair for us to judge Midge by her own personal standards when we would not apply those standards to other people. Like We would not be coming away from that game saying, yeah, um, Simone Charlie should have scored a goal with those chances or almost any other player. Even like Sam Kerr, you would expect her to score the goals from the, those chances. But when you're pulling balls wide from 21 yards out, it's it's not a shock or anything. So I think it's, I think it's an interesting way to think about it, whether it's fair for us to be as hard on Mitch Purse as Mitch Purse is on herself. I mean, I think in terms of Simone Charlie, I, I don't I don't think she necessarily had her best game. I don't think she was clearly not as dynamic as she looked against Chicago. Mitch Purse, yeah, I, I think she was still doing what she's been doing, and I, I I think her standards are, and that that's the way it should be. I think her standards are pretty high for herself. I, I do not leave that game uh, feeling like Midge Purse's stock was down or anything like that. I, I think she put in a good performance, um, but I, I think that just speaks to her mentality. I, I don't think we should be judging her on those standards, but I, it's good to have a player that has that mentality that when they don't score, they don't feel like they've done enough. Um I, I think that it was just a frustrating game for her and, and the rest of the team because they feel like they could have got that uh, win at home and they weren't able to do it. I think the frustrating part has to be that the way that Utah defended, it's as if they looked at the film from the previous three or four games and just said to themselves, these de- these defenses aren't making them do enough. Like you think about the goal in North Carolina. Celeste Bouray just plays a ball of the defense. Midge Purse one touches it in o- into an open goal because the t- keeper's coming out. You're not really asking the Thorns to put together sequences. You're not asking them to to make tough reads. And that's essentially what Utah did. They basically kind of looked at the Thorns' previous games and and said to themselves, at least I picture it this way, you know, if we just make them try to make one more pass, if we make them have to make a hard decision, I wonder if they can do it. And on Friday, they didn't do it. I mean, there's a point in the first half where Mitch Purse cuts back in onto her right foot after Megan Klingenberg plays her behind the defense. She's going to take a shot, but Sam Johnson, Rebecca Moros is there to be human pylons, and Nicole Barnhart is too. They've dropped back and kind of said, do one more thing. We're not going to give you this one. Just do one more thing. Find a teammate, maybe do something to get a better shot than this, but do one more thing. And the Thorns never did that one more thing on Friday. Yeah, I think that's a a good way to put it. I I think that there has been a feeling that this attack, um, even though what they've done in this world cup period, I I think has exceeded expectations and and it has been um, really great to see. I I think there is a sense that they are maybe missing that one more player contributing or, or, 
uh, just being a little bit uh, more unpredictable and having a few, uh, you know, different um, things that they can pull out and, and do to, to create danger in the attack. The, the fact is they're about to get players back. So I, I don't know if it makes too much sense for us to spend a ton, a ton of time evaluating. Uh, maybe it does going into this Houston game, but evaluating what this attack can do to be a little bit more dynamic uh, or, or a little bit better. Um, because in a few games, suddenly we're going to see a completely different attack. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that, but that's that's actually true. We know that probably for the Houston game, they're not going to get any of their major pieces back. Andresina's back, but we don't know if she's going to play. Uh, that would really help because they need a player that can play that creative yeah. ball in the final third. Uh, you think about the situation we just described. If, if Mitch Purse cutting back into her right foot sees not a lot of goal angles, well, the next person in attack is likely to be Andresina. She can lay that ball off to Andresina. Uh, but at the same time, we're looking at a one or two game window until the Aussies really start to get reincorporated at this point. And like you said, is it really worth breaking down the tactics of how they can develop that next level of danger? Or is the better conversation is going, has Mitch Purse done enough to put herself in competition with Haley Rosso? Has Simone Charlie done enough to keep herself in these 18s once the team gets filled out a little bit more? Uh, has Elizabeth Ball done enough to push Ellie Carpenter at right back? Going through the players and starting to ask those questions, to me, that seems like a, a better use of our time because I don't think the Thorns are going to be a completely different team when they play Houston on Saturday. I just I, I don't know how. They're so hamstrung. They're limited. And obviously with Purse and Charlie up top, there's a certain way of playing that is going to be most... Uh, most disconcerting for the other team in their preparation. I don't think the Thorns are going to come out and play like Barcelona on Friday, on Saturday. But, I mean, maybe we should just go through them. Jamie, what do you think? Mitch Purse, do you think she has done enough to be in competition for that last attacking spot in the starting lineup once everybody starts coming back? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Because I don't, and, and I think part of it is I don't think uh, Serna Gorchevich or, or Brynja Stoddard have done enough to, to prove that they deserve to be that final attacking player. Um, I, I think that purse has been the one that's taken this opportunity and, and run with it. Um, I, I, I think it would be hard to take her out of the lineup for say, and start Serna Gorchevich over her at this point. So I, I think she's put herself in a good position to potentially earn essentially that last attacking spot. Um, when you look at what the thorns were playing before, obviously you're going to have like Tobin coming back in. Um, I, I mean, I don't necessarily know that she's competing with Haley Rosso. I, I'm trying to think, I think, yes, to some degree, Haley wasn't starting. I'm, I'm in my mind going back to the lineup no. from the beginning of the season. No, but, no, you're um, right. There are more players to mention here. I didn't mention Serena Gorchevic. She needs to be mentioned here. Yeah. I, there's also the possibility that Mitch Purse play, competes at right back. But yeah. at this point, the reason Mitch Purse is in this conversation is not because we're seeing her score goals and think, oh, she can do that at right back, too. <laughs> the reason she's in this conversation is because Haley Rosso hasn't established herself as a starter this year for a number of reasons. Um, she's still at the point where she's integrating herself back into the thorns and she's just kind of an expected starter if she's 100%. Anna Cernogorcevich was the starter, the third attacker in addition to Caitlin Ford and Tobin Heath, but she hasn't produced. So, yeah, like you said, it's not just Haley Ross. So I kind of framed that one incorrectly. It's a number of different people. Yeah, so I think Purse has to at least begin the opportunity to, to get a start there when everyone's back and see if she can be the same player. Now, Simone Charlie is very interesting because when Mallory Weber and Ifeoma Onumanu, sorry, I mispronounced that, Ifeoma Player of the Week Onumanu <laughs> were, in, were released, people kind of didn't see why. And now I think they see why a little bit because there was a roster crunch because Simone Charlie wasn't signed before. And Madison Pogart wasn't signed before. And Emily Ogle wasn't signed before. And in order to bring them in to help during this week, 
they started they needed to shuffle shuffle things around a little bit. Now the story behind all those players isn't exactly the same, but with Simone Charlie, you do wonder has she done enough to keep her place in the 18s? Are they going to find a play a way to have both her and Tyler Lucy on the bench? Or does there have to be some kind of decision between those two as to who is dressing on game days? I think they can find a way. I'm trying to think back to all the players they want on the bench, but I think they can find a way to have both those players on the bench. I think Simone Charlie's done enough to to really compete for a spot on the 18. I don't see her starting um, when all the players come back. I just don't see the spot for her yeah. uh, when you have all those players um, in the lineup. But... I think she's going to be in the 18 or in a lot of 18s. Yeah. I have this voice of Mark Parsons in my head. When we made that list of people who would be competing for that last starting attacker spot, he would say, and don't forget Simone Charlie. I, I, I don't really see Simone Charlie as a starting right winger in this league. And that's essentially the spot that we're talking about here. But I do see her as a person that could come off the bench and depending how, how the coaches are feeling in that given game, provide more than Tyler Lucy. And look, People who listen have listened all year should know that it hurts me to not big up Tyler Lucy on the show. I've had weeks where I predicted she would score goals. I thought yeah. she would be a starter during this period. Simone Charlie has been starting instead. But the reality of the, of the situation is if we're in a situation where one or two of Rosso, Purse, and Cernogosevic are coming off the bench, then you're already pushing things to have a third attacker. But you probably will based on the strength of the team. It does it come down to Lucy versus Charlie? And if it does, based on the playing time the players are getting right now, it seems yeah. like it's pretty clear who's ahead in that race. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, I, I think it's going to remain a competition uh, through the rest of the season. But I, I think Simone Charlie's done enough to prove herself and, and clearly has been getting a lot more playing time here than Tyler Lucy. Yeah. Um, anything else from the Utah game? I think for me... Uh, I, the lingering question is, and I, I talked to a few people about this this week, is whether the league, after seeing the having three or four games on the Thorns, this version of the Thorns, whether the league has figured out uh, how Portland is playing, how to how to instill countermeasures against them. And like you said, there, there's only one more week, maybe two, where that matters. But as it concerns the Houston game, it does matter a lot. Yeah, uh, Thorns will go to Houston Saturday, 530. It, it's... A place that they've had, it's been tough to play there before. Um, Houston is sixth in the standings, but they are coming off a road draw with Washington. And when you look at their lineup, um, given sort of the lineups of teams across the league right now, they have some talent in that lineup. It's not like they have lost everyone to the World Cup or anything like that. They they have some of their best players uh, available. I do think it'll be interesting to see how Houston sort of approaches the Thorns, especially the Thorns attack, uh, because you are right. I, I mean, I, I, people have video on the Thorns now, and I don't think the Thorns, this Thorns team, I, I think there is sort of a certain way they have to play, and trying to adjust from that, it, they might just not have the personnel to, to make too many changes. Mm. Um, and I, I think teams are going to catch up with that. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, one of the things that because of the way the week has worked, we haven't been able to get a firm injury update on the players, specifically Emily Menges. But um, Jamie, what what do you know about that? Yeah, Mark said that they were, and again, this is not firm, but he said they were hopeful that she could be a factor in the game this weekend. So she was at a point at least where she was um, making progress and they, they had ruled her out. That was uh, Monday when he said that. I did see in training Wednesday that she was just running around. Um, she wasn't participating in full training. She was with the trainer still working. The Thorns had a pretty light session uh, in general, 
but I, I don't know if that's a great sign when you see someone on Wednesday, assuming the club's traveling Thursday is not in full training. Uh, but it, she hadn't been rolled out. She's at the point where it's sort of questionable. Yeah, so we'll have to wait and see. And, and that's really why you know, we know we're not on firm ground regarding this injury is because you know, it's a it's a longer travel schedule this week for a Saturday game. So as of Wednesday, they're now out of town. So we won't get that update right before a game as we would in a normal week where they're at home and Mark Parsons might be available to media the day before a game. Um, Jamie, let's talk about the World Cup. More than half of the Thorns players are now out of the World Cup. One is already back. We talked about her, Andresinha. Australians, Canadian, are on their way back. It was a rough weekend for the Thorns players in the World Cup. Went into last weekend with nine players active. Come Tuesday morning, there were only four players active. That happened fast. Yeah, and the U.S., uh, (laughs) there was a possibility there for a minute that all Thorns could have been coming home. The U.S. versus Spain (laughs) was not a super convincing performance. The U.S. is going to have to play much better against France on Friday. Um, It was... was it was heartbreaking and it was disappointing. I, I think for these teams, I, I mean, Brazil was not favored uh, to beat France, but they took it to extra time and they fought in that game and they had that chance, um, but they weren't able to get through. I, I think it was a good performance from Brazil in that game uh, to get to that point, but Australia and Canada, I, I mean, you have to be pretty disappointed with the, them both going out in the round of 16. Obviously I, I think the World Cup has shown that maybe we need to give these European teams a little bit more credit about uh, the growth that they've had. Mm-hmm. Um, places like Italy uh, and Norway, um, obviously the Netherlands, but the the Canada and Australia losses were both brutal. Yeah, well, let's talk about the Australia one first because the Canada one is more brutal, to be quite honest, just yeah. because the way it happened at the end. I mean, Australia, the story of their tournament is basically why they didn't play to their talent level and Tim asks straight out, why was Australia so disappointing? Do you have a theory, Jamie? I think the reliance on Sam Kerr, I think there's just too much reliance on Sam Kerr. It felt at times that like she had to be doing everything for this team to potentially get a win. And they have, obviously, they have Caitlin Ford there. They have Haley Rosso. They have other good players in the attack. And there has to be, they can't be as predictable uh, maybe as they were in the attack. It just felt like they were playing ball after ball to Sam Kerr and trying to make her create brilliance um, and, and find that goal. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's got me thinking about other sports where that starts to happen too. Um, well, mostly basketball because basketball is the other game where you can start to become a little bit reliant on individuals. You know, in soccer, we see it a lot with Argentina's Messi where they don't develop an identity. Their identity is just, as long as we get the ball to Leo, we're going to be fine. And that clearly hasn't been true. It's really disappointing to see an Australia team with this much talent become so one-dimensional. You start start to see the space between Kerr and the rest of the team grow and grow as they become more reliant on her and just kind of saying, we'll take care of the rest and you do this. And you know, it reminded me of Chicago at the end of last year in the second half against North Carolina. First half of the semifinal, Chicago kind of gets a lucky goal when Julie Ertz plays a ball off of Jess McDonald and it goes into goal. And in the second half, they were basically like, just kick it to Sam and let's hope something happens. And Sam Kerr is great. Her greatness is is implicit in a team even thinking that they can execute that plan and they can win, but obviously it didn't work. And um, for me, Jamie, I just think this is a young team that needed this learning experience. And you know, two weeks ago, I don't think we saw Australia as needing this learning experience, but just the way they played against Jamaica, where they won 4-1, but in the second half of that game, it was in doubt. Against Brazil, where they fall behind by two and come back and win. I mean, all of their group stage games, they just played like a young team that just hadn't 
hadn't gotten used to the role and hadn't gotten used to the expectations. Yeah, I mean, they are a young team, but at the same time, I, Sam Kerr, Caitlin Ford, third World Cup, there's a number of other players. This was an experienced team. They were young, but Australia brought in, look back to the 2011 World Cup, they brought in a really, really young team. I, I Maybe I, I agree with that, that, that maybe they're young and they had to learn those lessons, but I feel like those lessons should have been learned before, given, despite their youth, the experience that they overall had. Yeah, I, I think it's about the type of experience for me. I mean, I definitely think I should consider that, that they have a lot of experience, but in, in a way, I think it almost worked against them because they had seven, if you go back to farther ahead of 2011 to their preparation for that, seven, nine years of being a certain team. And it, that certain team was, we could play with the youthful abandonment of a lack of expectations. And then you all of a sudden over this last year plus change gears on them. And they didn't, they didn't deal with it very well. They were struggling before this tournament. They changed coaches. There was um, discontent because of that t- coaching change and before that coaching change. And I think as much as the World Cup itself, it's those six, 12 months before the World Cup that are learning experience too. It's yeah. kind of saying, you know, like the U.S., obviously a very experienced team and a whole program that has been through this before, but they kind of spent their first two years of the cycle learning things. And after that, they kind of said, now we actually have to get ready for the World Cup. And it almost seems like Australia at no point kind of stopped and said, and now we have to get ready for the World Cup. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, Yeah, I, I, I will see what this does for them going forward. But I, I definitely think, I, I mean, there's it was a disappointment. And I, I think every player from Australia is coming out of there feeling that way. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Now let's talk about Canada. Let's start with the thing that we have to talk about with Canada because everybody is talking about it. Are you okay with Christine Sinclair not taking that penalty kick at the end? No. I, she should have taken that penalty kick. I, I mean, I think it's come out sort of the reasoning. Uh, she had missed a penalty kick at the Algarve Cup and, and Becky had made one. And so that I think I think she overthought it. She gave the PK to Becky. They maybe had talked about it before, but I, I think that was overthinking it. Christine Sinclair is the captain of the this team. She is the second leading goal scorer in the entire world. Um, And this was her last World Cup. I I think you, I shouldn't say that. This is likely her last World Cup. I think that in that moment, she's the player that needs to put the team on her shoulders. And and whether she makes it or misses it, it, it's on her there. It it shouldn't be on uh, a player that's in their first World Cup. And it hasn't necessarily been in this moment before. Yeah, I think those are questions that we have to continue to ask ourselves. I, I'm, I'm definitely more the type of person to, once I'm given an explanation, ask myself, well, does that explanation check out? And I think this explanation does check out. The logic, the logic that you mentioned regarding Hel- Helvig Lindahl, and we saw how good she was on that penalty kick, even though it wasn't the greatest penalty kick. She was practically at the post by the time she had to save the ball. I mean, the logic is sound. It's just a matter of whether you think it was the right time to employ that logic and... I guess I'm always going to live in a space where I want to give them credit. I want to give, like, not take away their agency, not take away their ability to make their own decisions. But because that decision worked out poorly, you'll always wonder if the other yeah. decision, the one that we assumed was the right decision, is going to be right. And man, I, I just wouldn't, I personally, no matter whether that decision was right or not to have Jenny Becky take the kick, I personally wouldn't want to live in the space that they're having to live in now because they are living in a world that is defined by uncertainty. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, and I, I, I mean, Christine Sinclair talked about it before she left. They, she had high hopes for this Canada team. She felt like they were young but experienced enough, and it just wasn't their tournament. I, I mean, even had they made that penalty kick, we don't know um, what that would have meant for them going forward. They didn't have a particularly strong group stage. They finished second in their group. This team had very high expectations for this tournament, and it really didn't play out that way. Yeah, and I think if they had lost to another team besides Sweden, it'd feel different because while Sweden is respected, they're respected as a team that if you have aspirations for yourself, you should beat them. They're a steady team. They play good defensively. They make it tough for yourself, for your team. But you should be able to accomplish tough things if you're a good team. And Sweden didn't do anything that really said, wow, yeah, we didn't see that coming. Sweden deserved to win this game. Sweden did deserve to win that game, but they deserved to win it because Canada didn't respond to the challenge. I think that's what's going to hurt most because when you look at Canada's players and you even look how they played in their loss against the Netherlands, I think they're a better team than Sweden and they didn't show that in the round of 16. And to go home feeling like you didn't play your best game when you were sent home, again, that's just that's just not the way you want to leave a tournament. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about one positive thing from the World Cup before we uh, move on to just a few listener questions. The U.S. will play France on Friday. Yes. The U.S. has advanced. There are still four thorns in this World Cup. I mean, at least we're getting this game. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that both teams won, won their group um, so that one didn't get set to the other side of the bracket. And yes, this game is way too early, but I would rather have this game too early than not at all. And so now we're not really risking these teams either slipping and getting picked off or something else happening. We're getting this game. It's the game everybody wants to see. And for me, it almost, as blasphemous as this might sound to people who are big World Cup fans, this is almost more important to me than who wins this World Cup because I want to see just the game that we're all expecting. I don't want to live forever looking back at this tournament and saying to myself, yeah, but what would have happened if the if the U.S. and France got to play? Over the last three-plus weeks, we have kind of come to a consensus as, as a world of soccer fans that these are the two best teams in the world right now. Let's see them play. Let's see him play. Let the other one continue to fight for a World Cup, but at least eliminate all doubt as to whether the team that wins the World Cup could have done it if they had been drawn against the other. I'm, in case you can't tell, I'm really looking forward to this game. Yeah, I, I am really, really looking forward to this game too. I, I think you can't be a, a soccer fan, really. Um, I, I was going to say women's soccer fan, but you, I feel like any soccer fan should be looking forward to this game. Um I, I agree. I wish it had come in the final, but I, I'm glad it's happening than not at all. Um, and, and this would be a hard one for me to predict. It, it could go either way. They, the U.S. is capable of doing this. They are capable of winning the World Cup. But France is at home, and, and they are also uh, capable of beating the U.S. So we'll see how it plays out. I hope it's the game everyone was waiting for, but it, it could go either way. The squads are just so good, too. I mean, you know, Allie Krieger got a lot of flack for saying that, you know, she, I can't remember her exact wording. She either said she wanted the reserves to play like they're the second best team in the world or she felt like the second team for the United States is the second best team in the world. And I think that's an exaggeration, but I don't think it's much of an exaggeration, to be honest with you. I think if the U.S.'s second team was its own country, they would still be in the top five or six of the world. But one of the teams that would be above them would be France. And France has this amazing, I, I, just, I think it's so great, this amazing combination of veterans like Amandine Henry, Wendy Renard, Eugene Le Silmer, uh, Elise Boussardia, these players that have been through all of these disappointing wars that they've gotten themselves into over the last nine years. And then they've got the young players like Majri, Mbok, 
um, Tovan, uh, Diani, uh, Asai, like all of these players that make you realize that France has a depth of talent that really only one nation in the world can rival. But the combination of their talent, the complement of the old and the new, the skill set that they have the advantage on with the U.S., it's such a compelling matchup, Jamie. And I, I'm going to sit with you and say that I, I really don't have a prediction for this game. Yeah, it's going to be great, hopefully. Um, I'm excited. But yeah, I'm, I'm not going to try to be the journalist here and predict anything. I, I, I'm just going to be a fan and of soccer and, and watch this game on, on Friday. Yeah, I just hope for French fans that Sarah Bouhadi doesn't pull a trademark big tournament blunder and ruin it for them because all this tournament, their goalkeeper has not buhadied anything, but she's going to, she's going to buhadi something at this point. And this is the game where she can't afford to buhadi anything. <laughs> there isn't a margin of error for this one, but overall I think it's been a, a great world cup. And I think that's part of the reason we have a couple of questions on it. Um, Patrick asks, how would the thorns match up in leagues across Europe? So that's not really a world cup question, but it's something that's informed by what we're seeing from the European teams at the world cup. What do you think, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, overall, I think they match up really well. I, I think the the thing about you look at Fran, uh, the leagues in France and, and England, these aren't the NWSL. I, I think it's fair to say is the most competitive league in the world from top to bottom. These other leagues, it's really the real question is how would the Thorns match up against Lyon? How would they match up um, against PSG? It, it's not really a question of how they match up through the entire league because I, I think that there's a big drop-off between uh, those top teams. And I, I think you see the same in England. Yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm not buying the idea that Lyon, just because they're so dominant in France and have so much money to spend on their players, would are a level above the NWSL teams. I mean, you think about the Thorns. Best player in Canada on the Thorns. Two of the three or four best players in the U.S. on the Thorns. Uh, two or three of the best... Well, one of the best two or three Australian players and a couple of other really good Australian players on the Thorns. Best goalkeeper in the U.S. on the Thorns. I mean, you go just down the list of the talent that the that the U.S. has and then you start making similar comparisons to Leon and the Thorns actually look pretty favorable. Now, that's a weird way of looking at things because I, I'm basically saying that we have to look at things in terms of cross-sections of teams and um, Leon's a good good team to do this with because they seem to take pride in having like the Saki Kuma guys of the world or Jennifer Marazans of the world who are the best arguably the best players for their country but when you make those comparisons the Thorns aren't in a different world from Leon I think it'd be a very interesting game with two very different styles of play and um, I think the Thorns match up with I think the Thorns and North Carolina and to a certain extent Chicago match up as with any team in the world yeah I mean absolutely I wasn't saying that um I don't think the Thorns would match up with Lyon, but I, I yeah. do think that's the conversation. It's not really with the leagues. Um, yeah. I think it would be an interesting game one way or another. Yeah, and then let's go to our second question here before moving on to our predictions for the week. Tyler asks, do you think it's a slap in the face for the World Cup to schedule the Gold Cup sl- simultaneously? Yes, and especially the finals are on the same day, if I remember correctly. So, yes, I think <laughs> that's a stupid move. I don't know why that couldn't have been avoided, at least to be avoided to not have the finals on the same day it's it's incredibly frustrating. Do you think it's a slap in the face to Champions League for MLS to schedule days on the Champions League games on the Champions League final? No, because people are going to watch the Champions League final. So you really think people so That's what you're saying. You really think I, I mean do think, I don't think Gold Cup is capable of slapping the Women's World Cup in the face. Gold Cup I mean, I Gold Cup is dumb. Should, yes, I agree with that and I think you should be watching the the Women's World Cup, but the but I this was an avoidable situation and there are some people that might watch the Gold Cup over. I don't think I don't think the comparison from Champions League to MLS is the same. Um unfortunately, I I think there are some men's soccer fans that might choose to watch the Gold Cup over the Women's World Cup but might otherwise if there wasn't that game 
tune into the World Cup and see what see the amazing performance that the women are going to have there. So, yeah. I guess I I think yeah. this could have been avoided. Um, I, I don't think it's going to cause terrible ratings for the World Cup or anything like that. We've seen the, how great the ratings have been TV wise so far, uh, at least for um, the, especially for the big games with the U.S. But it, it could have been avoided. So why wasn't it avoided? I just don't think it's a it's a big deal. Like we're supposed to make like a worldwide national holiday for soccer for any cup final. I mean, look, the, the kickoff times don't conflict. If you really are choosing one or the other, then you probably don't care about the one that you're passing over to begin with, at least not enough to make time for it if it were on another day. Uh, I think, look, it, it's definitely disrespectful for both Copa America and Gold Cup to do this, but is it a slap in the face of the Women's World Cup? Gold Cup can't reach high enough to slap the Women's World Cup in the face. <laughs> Have have have, it, have you guys been watching the Gold Cup? It's terrible soccer. Yeah, it is the wor- <laughs> it is the worst continental tournament by far. I mean, you, it, the technical quality is bad. The level of competition is weird. I mean, the U.S. running out six nothing victory over Trinidad and Tobago just a, a short period of time, relatively at least, after losing to Trinidad and Tobago uh, in World Cup qualifying. I just can't get my head around that how the U.S. allowed that to happen, but. Look, I, I've probably watched parts or all of eight or nine of these Gold Cup games. I'll, I'll give it to them. They're consistent. They're consistently terrible games. <laughs> I, I, look, if you're loyal to CONCACAF, if you're loyal to the United States and you watch these games, yeah, more power to you. But don't. I personally don't even think the Gold Cup deserves to be in the same conversation as the Women's World Cup. Well, yeah, I, I will say that, of course, <laughs> I will be watching the Women's World Cup. Um which is going to be the better brand of soccer. I, I may or may not even tuning to the Gold Cup final. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how I'm feeling. The, fi- the Women's World Cup is definitely going to be my priority. The final of a terrible tournament that's three years out from the next Men's World Cup. Please give me another reason to not watch this. Please. <laughs> I dare you. <laughs> I, I feel like you have given all the reasons that you need to. <laughs> another thing I feel very passionate about, JV, is not watching the Gold Cup. <laughs> Well, let's talk. Let's give our predictions for games that we are going to be watching uh, this week. Um, let's start with Thorns at Houston. That's on Saturday. I, I again realize that it's better when you start these off. Yes, but I so let's think do that. that this is going to be a little bit difficult. I think that I, I, I think that the Thorns going on the road to a tough place. I think teams have to some degree figured the Thorns out. We'll see how it goes, but I'm going to predict a 1-0 loss. Yeah, I think this is going to be a very tight game, too. I can see this going any direction. I can see people thinking the Dash are favorite here. Like we mentioned before, they have a lot of good players here. Um, the ones that come to mind first to me, Sofia Huerta, Kaylee Ojai, these are yeah. two very high-quality players. Uh, but I do think that based on what we saw in Houston last year from the team where they played there twice, they had a really good performance the second time they were there. I think uh, the Thorns are at least going to get on the scoreboard here. Man, I, I hate going back to this one because it just seems like one of these golf clubs I keep pulling out of the cl- bag even though I can't really hit it. But Anna Sernogorsovic did score last year in Houston. It seems like an interesting pick to s- say that she'll finally get back on the scoreboard again, score sheet again, so I'll go ahead and pick her for this one. Jamie, the second game of the week, Timbers hosting Dallas 8 p.m. on Sunday at Providence Park. I'll go first this time. and uh, Well, I'll go first because we already know you're going to pick a 2-1 to victory for the Timbers. Uh, I'm going to go with a clean sheet for Portland, and we know the last two games at Providence Park. Also, clean sheets. Didn't get the clean sheet in Montreal. You would think that they would like to start that streak again. We know that the Timbers' defense has been pretty good for a while now, the only blip being against LAFC. No shame in that. I think FC Dallas, for the reasons I talked about before, has some learning to do about how this young team is going to start meeting these challenges like Providence Park. I like the Timbers to keep a clean sheet on Sunday. 
I, uh, I guess I'm not predicting a clean sheet, but I am predicting the win. I think the Timbers are going to get a 3-1 win here against Dallas. I, I think it is going to be a tougher game than Houston, but the, the Timbers are well-rested. I, I think Dallas is not going to be as well-rested. The Timbers have shown really well in the attack recently. Uh, I think this is a game that they can definitely get a win in. This is the ultimate compliment you can pay a team, is to say that you're better than the 2-1 home win. I see you as being a 3-1 win. I mean, that basically is like you saying, and tell me if I'm reading these between these lines incorrectly, that's basically like you're saying the Portland Timbers are the greatest team in MLS history. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it is, okay. but uh, I, I am predicting it's going to be more lopsided than a 2-1 win. Okay. Uh, Jamie, we have a fantasy update. You, normally, you, you usually read this part, but I'm going to read this part because, as you know, I am a fantasy soccer expert. Uh, it's the first week of the fall season for those of you that signed up again. Hopefully most of you did. Going to have a fall season of the Soccer Made in Portland League. After one week, it's a head-to-head league. In third place is Pisco. Uh, Eric Rivera got a nice victory, 110 points. Second win. The second place is the champion from the spring season. Wook score more goals. Robert Stein, 117 points. And then a name that we saw at the beginning of last season, but kind of faded away towards the end. Real Halastico, uh, Alex Perez, 119 points, the highest point total of the week. He sits in first place with that point total tiebreaker after one week of the fall season. Yeah, and uh, we also, um, so the Open League, there's going to be a separate Open League as well for this uh, season um, that is being set up. That starts in week two, so this week of the fall season. So people can still sign up for that as well. Um, It sounds like 41 people have already signed up for that one, but that was, I, I think, to get more people involved. Uh, so lots of fantasy going on in the soccer made in Portland world for people that are into that. Lots of fantasy going on on Providence Park lately with four goal games all the time. <laughs> we'll have to see if that continues over. I just like the way that I did that segue, though. Yeah, you, <laughs> you nailed that. We'll have to see if that continues over. Uh, it's been a long show for us, but that is all from us today. You can find us every week on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. We're Soccer Made in Portland, and until next week... Take care.